Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray. Our Father, your word will not return to you void. It will accomplish the purpose that you have in its sending, and I pray that your purpose would be merciful this morning, merciful as the Holy Spirit has been taught to us, Lord, that he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will teach us of Jesus Christ while he's come, why he's come. Lord, we need to know all of these things. We need to be aware of why he came. And in order for that to happen, we need to see from Scripture the truth about ourselves. Christmas is nothing but a fad. It's nothing but a tradition that will pass away unless we remember that Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom we are. And so I pray that you'd be glorified and that we would be in awe and rejoicing indeed that our sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Galatians is not an epistle often that we think of when we think of the incarnation or advent or the coming of Christ into the world. And yet this text every year confronts me as a Christmas or an advent text. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. As much as John 1, 1 through 14, as much as Isaiah 7, 14, as much as Isaiah 9, 6, 5, and 6, as much as Luke chapter 2, as much as Matthew chapter 1 and 2, this text says, it teaches us profoundly of the reason for Christ's birth. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We could go to verses like 1 Timothy 1.5, the beginning of that, that says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's perhaps the most succinct verse that describes why Christ came. Yet this verse, even from a bird's eye view, surrounds that purpose for Christ's coming with monumental doctrines of God's eternal decrees unfolding in history. His, the incarnation or the sending of Christ becomes the great focal point of all of history in this text. The Old Testament we're seeing in the context here points to this, gives way to this coming of Christ. We see Christ's eternality here. We see his deity. God sent forth his son. We see the humanity of Christ. And we'll understand this morning why that's so important, both of those, to our salvation. We see the first evangelistic announcement here given first all the way back in the beginning of the Bible in the garden in Genesis 3.15, but fulfilled in a virgin's birth in this text. 
And all of these doctrines surround a purpose statement and an end for which the, the Christ came to redeem those who were under the law, that they might receive, that we might receive, adoption as sons. That phrase, to redeem those who are under the law, is a very poignant and important phrase that we understand where it's coming from in this epistle, in Galatians. What does it mean to be under the law? These are those whom Christ came to redeem, those who were under the law. And there are two senses in this context which we understand those under the law and what it means. First, in the context, he means those of God's people who live prior to Christ's coming in a state of servitude to the law. You can see chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, where the law is a sort of a guardian over us until the one promise come or the one faith comes is how he says it. <clears throat> but that service, our servitude, do this and you shall live to the law, was given and was given uh, to Moses and through Moses to God's people in the Old Testament, but it was always meant to give way to the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham. And you can see that back in chapter 3 as well. And we'll consider that a little bit more later. But see, Abraham and Moses or the law are prequels to this fulfillment in this context. And so we have to understand as those who were under the law, as those who were under this, this period of God's revelation to mankind, whereby everybody was in a sort of servitude to this 613 codified rules. You live under those, that's how you live in this world, and if you're going to be known as God's people, you will live within the boundaries of those, that code, that law system. And so you're under the law in that way. But secondly, all sinners are under the law in the sense that we are condemned by it as lawbreakers. The law is held forth as a standard of righteousness. All are lawbreakers. All come short of the glory of God. And as sinners and as transgressors of the law, we are under its burden that we haven't obeyed the law. Not one of us has obeyed those 613 commandments, even to this day. And as they are summarized in two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself, not one of us has lived one day on this earth fulfilling both of those great commandments which is the fulfillment of all the law. And so we stand, secondly, as under the law in terms of condemned by it. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that there is a curse because we have not fulfilled the law and its standard of righteousness. This is the burden of our condemnation of being under the law. There's a curse. Cursed is everyone who does not abide in these law, this law. An Advent season is about how God redeems slaves, sinners, through the giving of his son. I want to make it clear this morning, as I did two weeks ago, 
I want to bring our consciences back to Scripture. I want us to come out of the world. I want us to come out of popular culture and popular media and the secularization of our consciences, and I want us to be held captive by the Word of God. Why did Christ come into the world? To save sinners. To save sinners. This world is actively trying to dull our consciousness to the heinousness of sin. To sin at all. We will replace sin and we will replace even the groaning of this earth because of our sin with the sort of therapy. We will tell ourselves that we are good by nature. And that there's nothing wrong with us except for what other people do to us. And yet that's an endless cycle. You can never get to the square one until you go all the way back to Adam. And it's him whom the Bible says that by nature we are all sons of Adam. We're all in Adam. And that is why death reigns upon all of Adam's children. Until one. Death didn't reign in one. The second Adam. And the, the identity of this world will be known by one of two Adams. The first one, who is the father of us all by nature, or the second one, whom God sent forth in the fullness of time, who was born of a woman, who was born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons, that we might be made alive in Christ. But I want us to see the glory of Christ because he is the savior of sinners at Christmas. I want us to consider this in light of four observations. When we look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, these monumental doctrines that surround the purpose for Christ coming into the world in the end, our adoption, which is to be conformed to Christ's image, when we consider these things, we feel, we ought to feel the weightiness of sin. Weight is a measurement. It's a term of measurement, isn't it? But in order to understand measurement, we have to have a standard whereby we measure something. And when I talk about the weight of sin, I want us to understand how great it is. And so we can understand the weight of it when we see what it's measured against. And here, first of all, we understand from this text that it has always been on the mind of God to redeem his people from their sin. It's always been in God's mind to redeem his people from their sin. It says here, in the fullness of time. And this conveys that not only Christ's incarnation and ministry was the full measure of how God had promised to redeem sinners during the old covenant, this implies also the defeat of sin on our behalf was in God's mind. This fullness of time regards the idea that before we were born, before Christ was born even, before the Old Testament was given, before all the promises were given to Abraham and the law came through Moses. Indeed, in Revelation, it says, Jesus Christ is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before all of that, God had planned our redemption, which implies that sin was part of his plan. That sin was part of his plan to overcome in the person, in the giving of his son. The defeat of sin was planned before anything was made. This implies. 
This was not schemed in time. This is not God's reaction to something unforeseen or unforeknown. When he created the world, he knew he would be redeeming it through his son. And the time of the fullness is the time of his advent. It's Christmas. What we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas is the fullness of God's plan coming to fruition. To redeem us from sin. The time we give to something is a good indicator of how important it is to us. You invest in something, you know that thing is an important thing to you. What you invest in signifies its importance. And before the foundations of the world was laid, God had a plan to defeat and to do away with sin. Sin was in the mind of God. Not that God sinned, but it was in His plan to remove it from our account. That teaches us of the weightiness of sin itself. God was thinking about this before anything was made. Secondly, God sent forth His Son for this purpose. Now in our minds when we read sent forth in His, his Son, this means that God's Son already was. The Greek language means that this is something not taken and making it new or making it come to be. This is taking something that already is and sending it or giving the thing as it already is. God gave his son. And here we should have categories of an eternal, perfect, and glorious union between the father and the son. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, the glory that we had before the world was. Now my, I'm done. I'm finishing my, the purpose that you sent me into the world. Restore that glory. And even now, the, the Son is at the Father's right hand in full and robed in full glory, full majesty, reigning there in His session. But here, God sent forth His Son and then we should remember that when God the Son became man, he humbled himself when we read this. Indeed, Philippians 2 said he veiled his glory. We just sang about it. Veiled in flesh the Godhead. See, see him. Hail the incarnate deity. Perhaps nothing else more clearly indicates the magnitude and the weightiness of sin's offense than this, the Father sent the Son, God the Son was sent in order to bear upon himself the guilt of our sin. And I believe that it took no one less than God the Son to remove our sin debt before the Father. Our sin was so heavy, it was so weighty, it is so serious that only God can save us from God because of it. It, fall, it falls on no one in the created order to save sinners. God had to enter into his creation in the person of the Son in order to save us. Nothing describes the weightiness of sin like that. Third, he was born of a woman. 
Now, now, this phrase is just remarkable. Do not overlook this phrase. I think it includes at two, at least two epochs in history. It might even include more. You know, when Paul says that women are saved by childbearing, I don't think he's meaning that a person is saved, a woman is saved because she gives birth to children. I think he's speaking redemptively. In the purpose of God from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, the first promise was made to mankind that the seed or the offspring of a woman would be the means whereby God would crush the enemy of his creation and of his people, the serpent. And so in that very first promise, the Proto-Evangelium, it's called, from that very first promise all the way to this mystery, this profound mystery, that not through the seed of a man, but through a virgin, the Christ would come into the world. Not through ordinary generation, but through extraordinary generation. The Holy Spirit conceiving This child in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And this promise that God gave at the very beginning to crush our enemy's head is now fulfilled in the birth of this child born of a virgin. Are these signs of promise and fulfillment that we rejoice in, but do we not see in them still the heinousness of sin? From the very beginning, God deemed to destroy the one who tempted our forefather Adam into sinning and Eve into sinning. It's God's purpose to destroy the works of the devil in the bringing of the Son into the world. Yes, this is fulfillment of what God promised in Isaiah 7.14, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. And he, she, his name would be called Emmanuel, being meaning God with us, and that's indeed fulfilled. But so is it fulfilled at Christ's coming and in his ministry that he would destroy the works of the devil. You see, all of this intertwines. The Savior had to become man in order to save man, but the Savior had to be powerful enough to destroy the devil, to resist his temptation, which our Lord did in Matthew 4. And to overcome his works. And listen to what Hebrews 2, 14 says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, it's you and I, he himself will likewise partook of the same things. How did he do that? He was made of a woman. He was truly man. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Has he done that? Amen, he's done that already. You and I are not bound in death now because Christ defeated the devil. We have the promise of eternal life because Christ rose again. That shows that the blood of the Lamb overcame our sin. It overcame our enemy. Satan has no more power over you if you are in Christ Jesus. This one who is born of the woman. But how great is sin. How weighty is it that this is what had to transpire in God's plan in order to save us. We could not be saved apart from this. 
Third, that we were born under the law. Christ being born under the law, it said, demonstrates that sin had gone much further, further than the Garden of Eden. There we had one rule, right? Do not eat of this fruit. Now it follows as God dealt with Israel, as God dealt covenantally with his people, he gives them 613 laws, as I said. And then two that summarize all of those, and they've never, nobody in the history of the world has ever obeyed them except for one man. One man. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Any of you do that this week perfectly? One, R.C. Sproul said, we've never done that for one hour. We don't know what that means. To love him with all our heart, all our might, all our soul. How about your neighbor? What does that mean? That means you see your enemy beaten up and thrown into a pit. And you give of your good and your times and your resources. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. I don't do that. You don't do that. Somebody did that. Somebody did that for us. One single man did that for us. Christ was born under the law, not as a condemned sinner himself. He was without sin, but as one who first must fulfill the law in every point. Fulfill all righteousness, he said. He didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, he said, which he did. But secondly, he came to die under its weight under the weight of the condemnation that we deserved because of our sin. You see, the law has two components to it, both a positive righteousness and a negative condemnatory aspect to it. Do this and you shall live, but if you do not do this, you are cursed. And Christ came to fulfill it all. Both the positive righteousness and, as it says in Galatians 3.10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. And then in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Understand this. When we talk about the weight of sin, we talk about the offense given to not the law, James says, but to the lawgiver, to God. We offend God, not a list of commandments, not a list of do's and don'ts, but we offend God when we sin. Jonathan Edwards was very helpful for me when he described something that should be clear to us if we offend in a small thing or we offend something with, we offend in a thing that somebody is not great or somebody who is a mere fellow of ours, right? That's an offense. It's a sin. But if we're going to offend a king in the same way as we offend our neighbor, the sin is much greater 
If we're going to offend, you can't even threaten the president's life. Even our president, who is no king. He's far removed from a king. And you can't even do that by law. How much greater is it to offend the living God? Every day. Every hour. And it took the Son of God being made man to redeem us from our sin, from the curse of our sin. And this is what he's done. He's done it. He's done it. This is already done. When we celebrate Christmas, you see the joy of living now at this aspect in God's plan of redemption is that we look back and we say it is finished with Christ. You look at your sin, you look at yourself, and you will despair, and we ought to despair. But when we look to Jesus, we know that he has resolved our sin debt. His life was given as a ransom to set us free. How do we weigh our sin in light of all of this? We see its gravity. We see its weight. But that's not where we need to end when we come to God. We don't need to end merely with seeing the weight of our sin and being in despair of it. That's part of what happens in our salvation. But that's not where we end. We need to rejoice that we have been saved from our sin. Listen to what he says here. Here's the end for which we are redeemed. So that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, Jesus doesn't save us to keep us in the bounds of slavery. He doesn't save us to keep us trying to appease God with things that we're doing, with the law keeping. You see, that's the problem with the Galatians. They had listened to some people that said, you need to start circumcising yourselves. Sure, Jesus has come, believe on him, but add to that faith circumcision and the obedience to the law, and then God will accept you, then he'll really be happy with you. And Paul says, no, do not resort back to the law. The law has been done away with. You're not slaves to it any longer. You're sons. You're adopted children of God. But as I'm focusing on the weight of sin, I want to ask us, does that mean then that as children of God, we rejoice in our Father, we rejoice in our Savior, does that mean that children just go on in sin without a conscience about it? Turn to 1 John. Here's, here's how I want to end perhaps this year, in the Advent services besides Christmas Eve. What is our response to this incarnation? The purpose of God being fulfilled, our adoption as sons, we're not slaves, we're not under the law anymore. What is our response? First John chapter 3. This is a holy, holy response to our redemption, to the incarnation. Verse 1 through 3. 
See what kind of love, or behold what manner of love. I love the way that King James puts it. It's, it's a remarkable love that we're beholding. You see, this is all in love. Why God chose to save us is incredible. It's just beyond me. It's for his glory alone, but this is because of God's love the Father has given to us. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? The reason why the Son of God suffered are now children of God when we're in Christ? And so we are. It's not a question. If you are in the Son, you are part of God's family. You are his children. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Galatians 4, 5 said that our adoption as sons comes as a result of Christ redeeming us from the condemnation of the law. God sending forth his son, this incarnation, this advent, this Christmas message that God sent forth his son into the world, born of, born under the, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Now we're sons. Now we're adopted as sons, those who believe on his name. Now, we see here in John chapter 3, we are that now. We are children now. But it doesn't look like it. The beginning of John, 1 John, he says, If any of you say that you are not still a sinner, you are a liar. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But his point here in verse 2 is, it doesn't look like we're children of God in this world often. You look at yourself in the mirror and you regard your sin before God day by day and you will say, how can I be acceptable before God? We're only acceptable before God in the beloved, in Jesus Christ, but we are in him. But what is our hope? He says, when he returns, we will be like him when we see him as he is. And that hope is the hope in verse 3 that he's talking about. And everyone who has this hope, his return, our being made in the likeness of Christ, our glorification, everyone who has that hope purifies himself. You see, faith doesn't just trust that Jesus lived and died and rose again. Faith admires Jesus. It loves him. It wants to be like him. He's Lord. He's our elder brother. He's worthy of all our praise, all our love, all our following, all of our obedience. And we're not like him yet. But looking to that day when he returns in the hope of being like him means, according to John, in the third verse, that we will now purify ourselves, even as he is pure. What does that mean? It comes from the Greek word that has to do with the cleansing. We will see ourselves cleansed. I think of it as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, that mortify your flesh. Put to death the sins that are in you. In other words, Christ is so admired 
that we will reject the things that by nature we would naturally pursue. That's exactly opposite to what the world tells us. You feel like doing something, do it. You feel like you have an urge to sin in this way, that's who you are, do it. And the, the Bible is saying, and the gospel is saying, the reason why we have been saved, the way that we have been saved is to save us from sin. Both in our judicial standing before God that we are justified in Christ, but also in the practical outworking of our faith. We want to be like Jesus. You say, how does that, how does that have, what does it have to do with Christ's coming? I just want to read the rest of 1 John 3, 4 through 10, and you can see why Christ came and relate it to how we conduct ourselves in this world and the purpose for his coming. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, trusts in him, is saved by him, keeps on sinning. That is, you have a pattern of sin and you pursue sin and you continue in it and you have no conscience to stop it. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, and in this context, that must mean your daily practice of sinning or righteousness. That is this. If we are not seeing Christ in such a way that compels us to put off sin, if we would rather pursue sin, he is saying we are not seeing Christ. We are not abiding in Christ because the very purpose of Christ to come was to do away with the works of the devil, not merely redemptively and eternally in our justification and glorification, but also in our day-to-day life. Christ's coming was to make a difference in us today and tomorrow and the next day. The confirmation into his image begins now. This is what's called progressive sanctification. Yes, we may falter and we will sin. But if you are looking on your life and you're looking at the pattern of your life, are you seeing God's work of grace in your life? Are you seeing that the sins you used to do, I don't do them anymore? Are you desiring that the sins that you are struggling with now, you will resist, you will fight, you will cut those arms off? Gouge out those eyes, as Jesus says, metaphorically speaking. You will do what needs to be done to get those out of your life. Bind yourself to your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Find accountability. Lean on the Holy Spirit, by whose help we depend on every moment for this. But who has been given to us for this purpose? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born by, of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So how will we glorify Christ this Christmas? First, we will rejoice at our redemption. We will be sorrowful of our sin, and we will, we will pursue the purity of our daily conduct before God so that every day that we live out, we might show the glory of Christ in us. This is what Christ came to do. May he be glorified and give us the grace to do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. They're glorious and they're hard, and yet we depend on you for everything in them. We depend on your grace for every aspect of it. We do not for a moment in ourselves or in our own strength have a, any potential to save ourselves, to redeem ourselves. It took sending the Son of God to do that, and neither do we have any strength in ourselves to, pure us, to purify ourselves apart from him who is in us, Christ in us. And so I pray by faith we would be sanctified. Continue the work that you began in us and complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, when we will be like him, when we see him as he is. In Christ's name, amen.